This episode is brought to you by Gorgeous. Gorgeous is the leading customer support platform built for e-commerce brands, helping merchants unlock revenue and deliver exceptional customer service. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 110 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today I spoke with Katie Wilson, the co-founder and CEO of Belly Welly. Belly Welly is the first lifestyle food brand that creates bars specifically designed for people who suffer from IBS and grapple with gut issues. In this episode, Katie shares with us her journey from growing up in Portland, Oregon, with dreams to become a matchmaker at just 10 years old, to making her dreams come true and becoming a matchmaker at Three Day Rule and later chief dating expert at Match.com, to struggling with gut issues and starting Belly Welly in 2020. She talks about how a survey to 500 people unlocked the realization that the majority of people she surveyed actually suffer from IBS in silence, how she fundraised while pregnant during COVID, and what it feels like to have a billboard of her company up in Times Square. If you like what you're hearing on the Stairway to CEO podcast, we'd love it if you left us an awesome review. And don't forget to click subscribe to get updates on when we publish new episodes every Tuesday morning. You can follow us on Spotify or check us out at stairwaytoceo.com. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Hi, Katie. Thanks so much for joining us on the show today. I'm really excited to hear your story in building Belly Welly. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Excited to share. Excited to be here. No better way to end a Tuesday. Yeah, absolutely. So where are you from originally? Where'd you grow up? Portland, Oregon, but uh, moved to LA the day I graduated from college. So I've been official LA for 10 plus years, or I think that, I think that makes you official LA. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of official. official. So what was it like growing up? Did you have siblings? What did your parents do? What was childhood like? Yeah. Oldest, oldest child got a brother and a sister. And I think both would tell you I'm super bossy reason. I'm probably, you know, sitting in a CEO role today. Maybe my husband, who's, who technically works with and for me, would tell you the same thing. But um, my dad was a pilot growing up, so we did a lot of a lot of travel and flew standby, which teaches you to be really, really, really patient. Yeah, and flexible. Totally <laughs> flexible and patient. Yeah, yeah. I've totally done like one day trips to Europe just because it was possible and it was like totally willing to do the nine hour flight for, for one day. So definitely, uh, aviation family, uh, through and through my grandpa was a pilot. My brother just signed on with Delta. Wow. That's this week. Yeah. So the benefits yeah. just keep going. That's well, mine are done. Mine ended a long time ago, but oh uh, no, yeah, I wish, I wish it was like a lifer thing. Right. <laughs> And so what about your mom and what, what, what did you want to be when you grew up where you're like, I, maybe I'll be a pilot. So no, I was the weirdo who came to my parents at 10 years old and said, guys, I'm going to be a matchmaker, which is kind of, I, I think maybe every parent's worst nightmare, right. It's like their child to tell them like, I'm going to go move to LA and be a matchmaker, which I actually said at 10 years old, I wanted to do. So I was well, like that. Kid how on did the you playground. even know what a matchmaker was? I didn't know what a matchmaker I was. I, didn't. I knew I was the weird 10 year old kid on the playground with like a little notepad saying like, Ryan, you need to date. Leslie and Leslie. Oh, I think, who do you like? I was that kid. Do you remember those games, this game called mash? Oh my gosh. Mash was my jam. Like I was the kid leading the mash <laughs> That games. was yeah. like, oh my God, my future. Everybody wants to know oh what their future gosh. looks like as a kid. You're like, who am I, I going to marry? What's like my a, house going to look like? That's totally, I ran into a 10 year old the other day and asked if they still play that game. And they he looked was like, at me what? like, I'm crazy. <laughs> like, no, we don't play the game. Um, I was like, web three, what? 
Yeah. <laughs> is that but a cryptocurrency? Actually, but actually, but actually, um, times are so much simpler. But yeah, no, Mash never predicted that I was going to be sitting here running a, a, a CPG company, that's for sure. But I knew I wanted to be a matchmaker from an early age, so much so, in fact, that once I was in college, I went to OSU. I went to LA every summer and interned for different professional matchmakers. That's not a thing to be clear. So that's not a job. I'm still I- stuck on how <laughs> at 10 years old, you knew what a matchmaker was. Like, who is this person in your life that was a matchmaker where you're like, that's what I want to be? Or how did you know that. it was a job? How did you even know it was a job? I don't know. I was like called the, I was called the playground matchmaker. Like my friend called me that. Oh, so like maybe your friends kind of told you someone maybe. in your peer group knew what a matchmaker someone, was. Someone was smarter than I was. Yeah. No, I mean, I grew up in a, like a, you know, little suburban community in, in the middle of outside of Portland called Lake Oswego. So yeah, definitely didn't know any matchmakers, but yeah, somehow some, some way that's what I knew I wanted to do. So you were like nicknamed a matchmaker early on. You're probably like, what is a matchmaker? It's who I am, I guess. So what does that mean? (laughs) No, I remember like even in high school, it sounds so odd. I was a TA, I think that's what it's called for like a teacher's prep period, just so I could chat with him about his, his girlfriend. Like I was like sitting in there on a, like a, I was like supposed to be his assistant during his prep period, which is like hilarious. Right. And I would sit in there and like, we would like chat about his relationship problems when I was in high school, which is like super weird. Talking and saying it out loud, but I'm wondering what the dynamic was with your parents <laughs> that made you like a relationship psychologist at a young age. I don't even know. My parents are so happily married. They've been married for, I don't know, like 35, 40 years. My grandparents are still married. They've been married for more than 60. So I've got a lot of happy marriages in the family and I don't know, maybe, maybe that's what it was. Maybe that, that, did they have a matchmaker? I wish. No, they were like, they, they were like each other's first girlfriend or boyfriend and I don't know. Yeah. Like 19 and beyond. Yeah. Oh, wow. And they're still like crazy about each other, but there's something to to distance, right? Like my dad's still gone five days a week. And so they have kind of like a long distance marriage, but that works for them. Interesting. Yeah. So you were really curious about relationships from a really young age and yeah, we're just kind of asking questions and trying to connect dots. Yeah, that's, that's how I'll put it. And then I think, um, like I said, in high school, I could like really formulate that I wanted to be a matchmaker. And I remember at the time, like researching things like eHarmony and match.com and being fascinated. So that was as early as high school. Uh, or late high school, I think. And so you were like, there's all this technology to help match people, but I still want to do it as a job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so how totally. does one, so then what was your path? Like, if you're like, I want to be a matchmaker at that time, what was your like next couple steps to actually achieve that? So in, I went, you know, to school, college at OSU and was like, so typical as speech communications major, which is like, fits my personality, right? It was just like, man, I could talk more than usual. And I decided freshman year that I wanted to go intern for matchmakers in LA every summer, every college summer. So said parents were very cool and said, one, are you sure this is what you want to do? And then question two was like, okay, let's like help you make it happen. So I just emailed, like I would Google professional matchmakers and I would email them and say like, can I come help you for a summer? And my parents' rule was always, you can do that you have to have another internship. Like you have to be doing something else at the same time in case matchmaking doesn't work out. So like, I remember the first summer I interned in as a recruiter and then next summer was PR, but I was always like my, my 80% of my time was spent with a different professional matchmaker each summer. And as I'm sure you can imagine or appreciate, you, you know, it's an odd sampling of people, right? When you're like cold Googling. Because these people like work for themselves, right? Yeah. So I was like, working for like interning for like mom and pop matchmakers. They must have loved it. They're like, Oh my God, people, do you actually want to intern for me? Oh, it was like an absolute, like, sure. Of course you can intern. I've never right. had this ask before. <laughs> so like, I remember the second summer I was, she, this, this matchmaker had me like going out to clubs and like meeting potential matches for clients, but it was quite the, uh, not it a was bad cool. job. No, it wasn't, but I was quite the, 
kind of quite the entrance into LA life to say the least like because you like just I have to go up to kid. people and be like are you single and they're like whoa are you hitting on me and you're like no I'm asking because I'm actually a matchmaker I am like the most shameless person I forget that it's weird to talk to someone about their dating life like within two sentences of meeting someone but even now it's like I promise I'll probably ask you something about your dating life and like the first five dairy dating life married life whatever it is the first five sentences of like, what no are your know. first go-to questions and what does it tell you about the person? I always like to, I mean, one, it's like, are you single? Are you looking? And my favorite question, although it's like, you have to wait a minute to ask this is like, who have you dated in the past and why didn't it work? And I love saying like, who's someone you can't get over? Like, I don't need to know their name, but like, who are you stuck on and why are you stuck on them? And then I think my obvious ask is like, you have three deal breakers. What are they? Like you are maxed at three. I want to only hear three and three must-haves. And of course, like, you know, everyone always adds to those lists, but you get a pretty good sense of someone right away. And so with the ones that they can't, they're still stuck on, what does that tell you? Oh, I just get to, I, that gives me a sense of who they go for and like what their type is. It doesn't mean that's who I should match them with, but I think like physical too is, is part of that. Right. So like, I'll often say like, what did they look like? Because we've all got a type and it doesn't mean you're going to marry or end up with your type, but you can waste a lot of time as a matchmaker trying to match someone with someone that's like, I don't know, not someone that they're, they're likely to be attracted to. If you just don't start with that up front. Right. Are you really into those shows on Netflix? Like love is blind and all those. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Of course. Yeah. Like I, I would love to be able to say like, Oh no, but no, absolutely. Like I kind of love those. It's like my yeah. secret trash TV that the love is blind is just hilarious. <laughs> love is blind is my jam right now. Like I think it like blows something like bachelor out of the water. It's right. Oh my god! Yeah, so good. I could never really get my head wrapped around Bachelorette or Bachelor. It was just like neither. I mean, I'm even still a sucker for Love Island. Like it, anything, it love, me. I'm kind of a sucker for too. Me too. Yeah. I think matchmaking um, must be really fun, but probably challenging. Yes, the word is not. The word is not fun. Actually, it depends. I should say, I so now I'm not you know actively matchmaking. But well, I shouldn't say that I, you know, I'm running a company. So that's where my time is spent. But today I do keep a spreadsheet at all times and I can't help myself. So if someone, if I come across someone single, I add them to my spreadsheet. And I always say that once a week, I spend 30 minutes on my spreadsheet and I decide if two people on the spreadsheet need to meet each other. And that's totally fun because it's free. It's free. Right. So like, I love doing it for free and for fun. So this version of matchmaking, right, which is like 30 minutes a week for fun and free is an absolute blast. In so fact, you I, get hit up after this with a bunch of people trying to DM you for some free matchmaking. On my spreadsheet. Just, yeah. Yeah, you can be on my spreadsheet. <laughs> I just, I actually heard recently when I first started fundraising for Belly Welly, I crossed paths with two different investors who weren't, weren't a, you know, weren't a fit for Belly Welly as investors, but we had, I had a great rapport with both. And they're both single and it came up in both conversations that they were single. So about a week afterwards, I thought, oh, I don't really know them, but they need to meet each other. Like there's something about them that feels like a good fit. And I connected them. They both were totally down to, to be connected, connected them. And then I never followed up on it. I just like, totally kind of forgot about the relationship I had with each and the relation, you know, the, the connection between the two. And I heard from him, I hope I'm not like spoiling anything by saying this out loud. I heard from him, I guess I haven't said. Well, we don't know who they are, so you're good. No, you guys, but I heard from him, I want to say like five weeks ago. So it's probably about to happen that he's proposing to her. (gasps) And the matchmaking does not end. (laughs) Like I forgot I made that connection. So. Wow. Yeah. So So let's back up. That's hilarious. But I know you actually had a career in matchmaking. So let's go back to like, you're actually a professional. Your dream came true. So how did you get that, land that job at Three Day Rule? Which by the way, we did an episode with Talia, who's the founder of Three Day Rule. And she was actually, yeah, I forget what episode it was, but it was one of the early ones. Like first, yeah, it was early, early ones. It's been a while, but she's amazing. And that, I'd love to hear your experience. How'd you, how'd you, find out about them and how'd you get started in real matchmaking? Yeah. Talia's one of my closest friends and just with her a couple days ago. So I went to go work at Hulu. So after four summers of interning for professional matchmakers, I walked away thinking, 
well, that was fun, but maybe this is not a lucrative career. So in the meantime, I'd spent a lot of time in kind of the LA tech scene and fall in love with startup. So I went to go work at Hulu right out of school, loved LA tech and really loved the idea of combining matchmaking and tech somehow, some way. And I was, I was, you know, right out of school. I didn't, was in no position to start my own company and was camping out at network events every night, hoping the path would reveal itself for lack of better words and came across Talia. She had three people on board at the time. And I said, count me in. Um, I actually, I actually quit my job at Hulu that day and joined Talia. And so spent the next, the next years at three day rule and loved every minute of it for all sorts of reasons. And when I kind of got into this strange kind of celeb space, one day we were sitting in the office and I sent a direct message to a very big male celebrity. Then this was years ago, so it wouldn't work now, right? But this was old Instagram. And I said, hey, I would love to match you. And here's who I'd match you with. And it wasn't, wasn't really meant to be serious. And he responded and said, if you can be at my house in 45 minutes with your pitch, I'll hear it out. What? Who were the, I'm really curious who you pitched to him. He was probably... <laughs> so... I went and I pitched him on a service that did not exist at the time. And he said, great, let's do it. And then I walked away thinking, oh my gosh, who am I going to match this cool guy with? And one thing led to another. And all of a sudden I, you know, I had immersed myself in the world of publicist agents and managers. And I was exclusively matching celebrities, which was a total accident, but it referral-based industry, right? So once you match one successfully, you, you know, you, you and you inherit a few more clients. So that's what I was doing. Can you say any of the, like the famous people you've matched? Sadly, I've, I have, I have signed my life away more times than one. I'll say, I'll say that. So no, but amazing stories as you can imagine. And some really great people too. And so I, I did that for years. And then the CEO of match convinced me to come start a vertical at match uh, in Dallas. And so, yes, and match, match.com, I'm sure most listening to this know that match.com is, it, it's all match group. So match group is Tinder, Hinge, Match, Our Time, OkCupid. So went and moved, we, you know, packed up everything in LA and moved to Dallas. And I did exactly that. I spent two years at Match and worked with an incredible team. I think there's something really humbling at least I should say for me, there's something really humbling about going from startup back to corporate, right? It usually goes the other way, but when sometimes you spend time in a startup and feel like you've seen it all and done it all because you've worn all these hats. And I thought, I felt there was something really humbling about kind of sitting in a corporate environment where everything is A-B tested and decisions are all data-driven. And as, as kind of tedious as that, that can be, I found that to be really valuable. And I think that's, that's kind of shaping how I'm approaching building business today. And you know, match was full of a lot of really smart people. And it was also certainly interesting to my matchmaking experience almost didn't apply. Actually, I would like to say it did because a lot of, I think one of the primary reasons I was at match was to kind of bring that all full circle, right. And share real human anecdotes and let those anecdotes influence the products we were building at match. But it was really interesting to look at dating via, via product lens, you know, so now I, I love talking about the dating apps and why they're hard and what works well and what doesn't, because that's what I spent two years thinking about. And it's harder to get it right from a product standpoint than it sounds, right? As a consumer, it's like, oh, why don't they just, you know, why doesn't someone just build a feature that does blank, right? And it's so hard. I mean, for the first six months of my time there, we really focused on ghosting, for example. Like, how do we solve ghosting on an app? When people go MIA, you're saying, how do you solve for that? Yeah. Yeah. So super interesting. And then I was, uh, we, we lived in Dallas for one year before we were itching to get back to LA. And so this was pre-COVID. And I hear a we. So does that mean you there's were- a, There's a husband in the mix. There's yeah. a husband. Um, there's was a there husband. Um, a, um, a matchmaking situation there or I an wish, app? I wish. Like I'm just so tempted to start lying and saying that we met through a matchmaker. But no, he was- I don't advocate for this because I actually think this is like 5% of the experiences people have when they meet their, their future partner. But like, he was really the, like the person I met and was like, he's my guy. I'm going to like, where'd you meet? Met at a couple different places in LA. So we like, we had 
first run into each other at a coffee shop and then eventually a, a nightclub. And I was, he was just like my guy. I knew from the second I saw him. At and the coffee so shop. He didn't feel that way. Yeah. He didn't feel that way about me. Like he had, he, he was like on a, we'll call it like a slower path. He had just moved to LA from England and was there to like have fun. Yeah. Forge like some, like kind of find himself. Right. And I totally threw a wrench in his plans and I was just like, I'll be patient. I'll wait. <laughs> I'm really glad I did. Cause he's like every bit as awesome as I thought. So yeah. So he's, and I thought he was totally faking his British accent for a long time. Like for a weird amount of time, I thought it was like a fake LA thing he was doing. And I was like, oh. an actor, <laughs> just like practicing. Yeah. I realized definitely was <laughs> not faking his accent. And so we lived in Dallas for a year and, uh, we didn't love Dallas. So sorry for all the, the Dallas fans out there. We tried, we gave it our all, but Matt was, was awesome and said, go back to LA, you can work remotely. And this was in a pre-COVID world. So that was very progressive at the time. Yeah. And so we got settled in LA right as COVID was kicking off. And I spent the next year still, you know, working at Match and loving every minute. And so how did you switch from that to Belly Belly? What was the initial inspiration? Yeah. So about six years ago, so in parallel to everything we just outlined, uh, or I just outlined, I came down with debilitating gut issues. And I was someone who like downed a muffin without thinking twice or like a bowl of mac and cheese. I didn't know what gluten-free really meant. So I'll spare you the details, but I got about a food poisoning and it just never really resolved itself. Or I should say I never rebounded. Um, so developed these gut issues, got obsessed with trying to fix them. And so I did all the things you do. I, you know, went to the GI doctor at Cedars and did colonoscopies, endoscopies, saw the naturopath, breath test, capsule test, diet, supplements. I ordered the like sketchy supplements on Amazon that like come from who knows where. But what were some of these symptoms that you had just for people listening to think, do I have gut issues? You know, like, what are you talking about? Totally, totally. So I was bloated no matter what I ate. So it felt like I would, I could eat like a clean meal, right? Like I could eat a salad and like hours later I was in pain. It wasn't bloated and painful, um, developed severe reflex symptoms, but I'll even say it was like almost unlike reflex. And that was like, I felt like nauseous all the time. My skin broke out. I felt like this, it was almost joint pain, right? So especially when I ate bread, no, I'm not celiac. I got tested for celiac a number of times. Are you gluten-free? What is it like intolerant? Maybe it's one of those things, right. That I learned along my journey is like, we don't have answers for a lot of this. So like kind of this, these nebulous symptoms are, I thought I was so unique and quickly realized I wasn't. I was fortunate that in that a lot of gut issues are bowel related. And I didn't have that. Like I wasn't severely constipated or wasn't stuck with diarrhea, but that's like a lot of the, a lot of people kind of going through what I was going through, have that layered on top, right? They're like severely constipated. But I just knew that the foods I used to eat, I couldn't eat anymore without pain, nausea, cramping. I had the worst, the worst abdominal cramping. And it was just changing my life. Like it was really, and I was a, I was a yes person, right? I was the person who said, let me go to LA for a summer and intern for a professional matchmaker. And here I now was, I was saying no to opportunities. I was scared that everything I was going to do was going to hurt my stomach. And at the time I was even sitting across from what should be some of the healthiest people in the world, right? Celebrities. And they, you know, for those who, those who don't know, many of them have live in chefs and live in trainers. And I, I would bring up gut issues or they would come up organically in our conversation. And I was shocked by the number of, of celebrities or kind of wellness you know, gurus who could relate. So that was kind of my, my first proof point. And then you know, I was spending all this time with the doctor trying to fix this. And I am sure that that only added to my problems later. I took a lot of antibiotics to try to thinking everything was a magic pill. And nothing was really working. And I think for me, the first, the first thing that happened is I started camping out in Facebook groups and Facebook groups almost sound old school now, but at the time it was kind of like what was available. And so these words, there was a couple of words that had become really important in my life. All of a sudden, those words were IBS. Those words were the low FODMAP diet, SIBO, leaky gut, bloating, and food sensitivities. And these groups were dedicated, like, you know, thousands of these groups dedicated to those words that had become really pivotal in my life. 
And what was really interesting is I was watching these groups grow really fast. So I would log into Facebook one day and I'd join a couple groups. And like a week later, these groups had three times as many members, four times as many members. And so I just, I started observing. I started you know, camping out in, in some of the chats, participating in the chats. And I realized everyone's story was like eerily similar. It didn't mean they all had about a food poisoning, but they developed gut issues. They couldn't figure it out. They were taking antibiotics. Nothing was working. They were trying gluten-free. Nothing was working. And so the next thing I did is I called up some GI doctors and I'd actually had one who was a former matchmaking client. I said, look, give me the non-doctor answer. Why does it feel like everyone's got some form of call it IBS? And their answers were almost unanimously the same, which was because they do. In the last five to eight years, we've seen this incredible uptick in the number of people with these miscellaneous gut issues. And lots of schools of thought as to why this is, right? There's, you know it's probably some combination of kind of the, the obvious levers, which is the environment, the food we're eating, hormones, things we all know and are passionate about changing. But one thing was sure, there was no magic pill. And the really sad thing about, about gut issues is there's really no fix. So you don't ever solve your gut issues. I'll never, I, I know now, I'll never return to a day where I can eat a piece of cheese pizza when hungover and be fine, right? Like if I eat a piece of cheese pizza today, I'm out for the count for a, for a couple of days. And so you never really fix it. You learn to mitigate the impact it has on your life. And then I think for me, the straw that broke the camel's back, I'll call it, is I became so obsessed with the space and no aspiration of starting a company. I was deep into my matchmaking career at this point, but so obsessed with the space that I sent out a survey monkey to my personal network. And between my husband and I, that reached about 500 people, no affiliation with gut issues or gut health or anything, just literally personal network. And in that survey, I asked, do you consider yourself an IBS sufferer? Among many other questions. And 76% of respondents said yes. And that literally shook me because it meant that not only were, not only was this as, as prevalent as it appeared to be kind of statistically, it meant that no one was talking about it. And that actually, th that I found more interesting. You know, here I was going through this and it turns out 75% of my network is two and we've never talked about it. Like, what? And Google stats will tell you 70% of Americans have daily gut issues, somewhere between one in five and one in, one in seven have IBS. And so that all seemed to sync up. So I still had no aspiration of starting a company, but I found myself in tears one night I just had a baby. I'm sure that did not help, but <laughs> and um, I was just missing chocolate chip cookies. I was trying to follow this low FODMAP diet, which is the diet you're supposed to follow if you've got gut issues. And I was tired of rice and vegetables. And I was, I just wanted this, this chocolate chip cookie. And so said husband, my, you know, waited patiently for <laughs> said, look, let me try to help you. So he hired a food scientist and he hired a dietitian and said, I'm going to make you the perfect IBS-friendly chocolate chip cookie in our kitchen. And I'm going to spend 15 hours a week on it. So he did. He, he worked on this in our kitchen. He would Zoom with them. He was like, had all of his measuring cups. And every week he'd go to the store and buy a weird new ingredients. And he'd kind of mess around with it in our kitchen. And after five months, he finally made something that I really, really loved. And so I spent probably a month eating way too many of them. And then I said, look, I want to make these available to this Facebook community that we've, that we've kind of developed and, and grown. Um, can you make 10 extra bars? And we were calling them bars at that point because they were really chocolate chip cookies that we were putting into Amazon bar molds so that I could take them with me on the, on the go. And he said, yeah, yeah. So we, we launched a really scrappy site. We called it IB Simple. And we woke up to hundreds, hundreds of orders. And so three months in, we were doing $10,000 in, in sales from our home kitchen and Nick was making thousands of bars. That's hilarious. I'm so curious real quick. Cause I'm like this, I mean, your husband basically was making this cookie for you. And I'm like, what love language is that? Is that, <laughs> he must know your acts of service. Acts of service. Is, acts of service. Uh, is that true? Are you acts of although, service? Is that your love language? Oh, I am. I don't know. I always like to say, I think I'm like all of them, but I know that's the cheating answer. <laughs> I think we like, all I mean, are though. That's the totally, point. But totally. like one is kind of should reign higher than the other. Quality, quality, yeah. Acts of service and quality time are big for me. So that said, I don't think he ever signed up for 
like the the sheer amount of time yeah making thousands of them probably wasn't (laughs) part of the plan it definitely wasn't um it got so bad in fact that my dad said pilot you know was flying in every few nights to help nick and we at this point we had moved back to la i was working at match and we'd converted our entire playa del rey kitchen into a commercial kitchen so literally we we bought U-line shelving and like the entire thing was covered in U-line shelving ingredient buckets. It was a single oven. So like our routine was, and there was a toddler by the way, in the mix at this point, um, whose first word was literally belly welly. So some version of belly welly. Was that how you came up with the name? So we were, we were working on this and at three months, you know, like our routine was like at six o'clock every night, Nick would hairnet and glove up and just make tons of bars. And we would just, I was on my laptop working this other job and that's what we did. And so at three months, it just, it was out of control. I remember the UPS guy coming for like the seventh time in a day. And he was like, guys, you've got to do something about this. So we did, we did do something about it. We, uh, we did three things. We said, look, we, we want to A, scale out of the kitchen. B, we want to raise some capital to do it. And C, we want to create a really thoughtful and real brand. So we did all three. We raised the first million dollars from incredible strategic partners who believed in the mission. And I think the part that I found extra cool was that I thought we were going to have a really hard time trying to explain this to people, right? I thought it was gonna have, we were going to have to explain IBS and low FODMAP and gut issues and the fact that this is really like a an, an epidemic, right? There's, there's just, you know, 70% of the population living with this. But that was the craziest part. Every single conversation we had, some either said investor or said potential investor had gut issues themselves and never said it out loud, or they had a friend, a family member, a son, a daughter, an aunt, uncle. And so it just became so clear how big the space was. So much so, in fact, I kept thinking, why has no one done that? Why, why has this, why are these words absent from the retail shelf? Did we really just accidentally stumble into this first? And um, so we raised the first million from some some incredible strategic investors. And then we uh, hired a co-packing broker to help us find the right co-packing partner. And then we hired a formulator to legitimize Nick's homespun recipe. <laughs> and then um, I called the designers that I had worked with at Match who, you know, design what you see if you log on to match.com today. And I said, you guys, can you design a brand that makes IBS cool to talk about? And they laughed and they never, you know, they designed tech products and they laughed and said, no. And I said, please, I promise it will be cool and fun. And I got them on board. And so Belly Welly is their creation. I gave them no parameters. I said, our COO calls it the sparkle unicorn pink brand. So that's very much my personality. So I probably gave them some parameters, but they created this sparkly fun brand that really like brought to life what I was aiming to do, which was kind of normalize this conversation and move away from this kind of food as medicine. And I'll get to the name. We were in a group chat and, you know, I had the homespun version of this that we'd only operated for a few months, but been called IB simple and founder bias kicked in. I thought that was just such a brilliant name. (laughs) And some of our early investors and advisors were the, the first few employees at smart suites. And I think they kind of they had the, they initially had the guts to say like, Hey, I think you should change the name. I think like that name's not as awesome as you think. And I remember thinking like, no, this name is so amazing, but they finally convinced me like, no, I think you should change the name. And so we were all in a group chat brainstorming and Talia's husband came up with belly Wally. And that was, that was just like the obvious choice. It was like, I loved it. That's funny. Yeah. We owe him some mega prize at some point. I just remember Talia's episode is episode 12. Can you believe it? This is, we are, we're past a hundred episodes now. And so that's a while ago. It's OG. I love OG. it. Yeah. yeah. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. 
With the rising costs of acquiring new customers, retention is a key focus for DDC brands. And creating outstanding customer experiences shouldn't be costly or a burden for your customer support team. This is exactly why Gorgeous is so great. They centralize all of your customer communications into one beautiful dashboard, personalizing each experience along the way, which not only helps you retain your customers, but also saves you time and increases revenue. Gorgeous works with over 9,000 brands, including Princess Polly, Olipop, and Boxu. So if you'd like to be one of them, head on over to gorgeous.com and mention the Stairway to CEO podcast to get two months free. That's two months free of Gorgeous when you head over to gorgeous.com. That's G-O-R-G-I-A-S.com and mention the Stairway to CEO podcast. Thank you so much to our amazing sponsors. I hope you're able to take advantage of these exclusive deals designed just for you. Now let's get back to the show. So you, you got the name, you got some designers to put together some amazing kind of packaging, get into a real kitchen, kind of make this real, raised a little bit of money. What have been some of the biggest challenges in building this company that you didn't really realize would come around? So many. Well, I think one, actually one, I'll start like with a personal one and I'll start with like a business specific challenge. Personally, I found out it was not planned. I found out I was pregnant with our second baby really like as we were building this and totally so, so lucky, right. To be pregnant and so lucky to, to have children period but I just wasn't ready so we'd had it for the the first pregnancy had been really rough and I just wasn't I wasn't ready I was like really excited to go focus on building this business and so I found that really hard I cried for like weeks when I found out (laughs) you're like my dreams are over (laughs) I really did I really found it hard I think my I remember my husband thinking like Oh, like you're okay with We're like supposed was, to be celebrating. Yeah. And I really, I wish I could tell you I was, but I, I really wasn't. And I, I think I kept thinking it's not possible to do what I want to do right. and do this at the same time. I think every woman thinks that. I really I do. All yeah. of us do. Why would you not? It's a lot of work to do totally. both. And I probably yeah. have been that person before that. I've been like, oh, you've got that. I would have said to someone else, like, no, you, it will be okay. But for some reason, when it happened to me, I really thought like, I, I, it's not going to, like, this is, this, this is not a good time. That was like really what I kept saying to myself. And so we were fundraising at the time and I wasn't intentional, but I think I just, I don't want to say I forgot to mention I was pregnant, but it's like time kept going by. And then I kind of like hadn't mentioned it. And then like more time went by and I hadn't really mentioned it. And then I was like, oh my gosh, like, okay, I really haven't mentioned this to any investor. So I kind of did this fundraising over zoom because it was COVID and I never mentioned to anyone that I was, I was pregnant, which again, sounds really intentional. It really wasn't like, why do we have to dec- disclose? I mean, I understand why investors would want to know, but really what difference would it make? Totally. I think it's a really interesting conversation. I definitely had that conversation with a few friends prior to kind of making a decision and it wasn't a straightforward answer, right? I think it's like still one of these subjects that doesn't have a clear cut answer. I mean, I'm, I probably am in the camp that it's your business. It's really no one else's business. Right. And you don't need to share. And I think, but I think, um, you're running a business, right. And it's going to take you, there's the potential for it to take you away from the business for a little while. So do you need to share? Right. And it's, so it's, I really don't know what the answer is. I really don't. Other than I think ultimately, right. You get, you get to decide what that looks like for you, but I certainly didn't know the answer. And I don't, I can't say in good faith that I, I didn't feel kind of guilty not mentioning it, which again, wasn't intentional, but I just like, I, I kept thinking like, I really should tell someone like that's re- responsible, right? If something happens to me, like who's going to run this business that we're raising money for. So I found that to be challenging to navigate. And then I think the, like the, the biggest challenge of all was that we were launching the business on March 26. And that was like, you know, we were all set up the PR launch, the whole thing. And my water broke that literally like hours before, like on the 25th and uh, very unexpectedly. And it broke for anyone. Like I wouldn't have understood how early this is, but it broke two and a half months early. Oh, wow. That's early. It's early. So like, again, if you like, it's, it only like makes a lot of sense in context, right? If like pregnancy is a language you're kind of speaking, but that's, you know, like six and a half, seven months pregnant. So we, 
you know, went and, and delivered little beta, little beta was two pounds and some change. And then I had, um, a really crazy kind of one in a million complication. It's actually the same complication that Kim Kardashian had went on to go have surrogates called placenta and creta, which led to a hemorrhage post-birth. And so it meant that I was really lucky. They saved my life with a hysterectomy and Veda and I are so lucky to be here, but we did launch the business, which sounds, makes us sound like crazy people. We launched the business on time the next day from a hospital bed. And I, I still think the doctors and nurses thought I was like a total crazy person i was like can i get my laptop and they were like no it's <laughs> You're like, generally like the sleep. request we get at this point but and i was there for a long time trying to recover from from this and so we ran the business from the hospital and then eventually the NICU because little beta was in the NICU for a really long time and so the doctors and nurses were a huge part of our launch they were actually our very first taste testers we had like doctors and nurses filing in every day to like check on the latest samples, ask how they could support. We brought them all belly welly swag. <laughs> Actually, some are still some of our biggest customers even today, a year later. But so that was like a challenge to say the least that was like personally rooted. But I do think is, you know, to some degree, a challenge a lot of, a lot of women, men, everyone probably faces, right? It's like, it's a juggling of like personal and family and business. Yeah. That's insane. I mean, I had a baby around the same time as you on the April 8th last year, but it's obviously a very different situation. And I'm glad that everything turned out for you guys. It sounds like a wild, very crazy, rare situation. So I'm glad you guys are all good, but I can't imagine like being in a hospital trying to actually get work done while you're probably on drugs. <laughs> Like, so many drugs. So many drugs. <laughs> so many drugs. So many drugs. Yeah. Right. Having people coming in and out of the room every couple hours, not sleeping, trying to work while keeping sane and your body is like you're physically just exhausted. That's a lot. But you could argue there's also no better time, right? Like you are literally chained to a bed. And when your little ones in the NICU, you're not with them, right? So you're like, I was like in a room by myself. And then husband had to, to go to production. So we were running production that week. So he was gone. So I was like, I just had a lot of time to kill. So it was strangely productive. <laughs> that actually helps a lot if the baby's not in the room, because then you can sleep. <laughs> exactly. It's like, yeah. And when the, your little ones in the NICU, you're it's you a, get to go see them, but you're not with them. So right, right. It's like visiting. You know. yeah. yeah. So you have a lot of, it was like a pleasant distraction almost, because otherwise, if you don't have that distraction, I can't imagine how like yes. heart wrenching that whole situation must be anyways. Yes. Yes. Oh. And we got very lucky. Everyone's here. And we yes. actually just celebrated Veda's first birthday with oh. lots of belly at the party. So <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. So now that you've, you know, so that was the personal side. That was the big yes. yeah. challenge. That's a major challenge. And then you said there was another one that was on the business yes. side. Yes. So I think this sounds very naive, but uh, I, you know, you can call my background tech. And I think one of the major challenges that I just didn't anticipate in CPG is, is operations, right? Is your, and I think it's been such a lesson when you're a consumer, you know, you have a product and you don't think twice about product going from A to B to C to D to E to F to get to you. And I just didn't understand all that went into that and all the complexity that, that goes on behind the scenes, especially our goal is to deliver a great customer experience. So I think, you know, that's a, that's a massive problem that I'm kind of, kind of oversimplifying here, but I just didn't, I didn't understand the complexity of getting a product into a consumer's hand. That's what, that's what I'll say. You can't please everyone. Right. And that's, that's really hard in this space is trying to sort through the noise and hear customers and, take feedback on board, but ultimately stick to, stick to what you know, or stick to the mission, right? I think, I think is what it is. Right. I'll give you, I'll give you an example. We know it was really important for us to be a low FODMAP product. And it was really important for us to be gluten-free and vegan, essentially anti-gut irritant. And we had a lot of customers really disappointed to learn that we were using nuts in our product. And so we, we use an almond flour and our almond butter. And 
I went through a stage where I thought, oh my gosh, we've got to, we've got to formulate this product with no nuts, which would have been a huge formulation lift. And I, I kind of ultimately had to say, look, we can't be at all to everyone, right? We can't be a winner in everyone's minds. We have, we, we've got to hear customer feedback and take as much as possible on board. And I'm a big fan of that, probably too much so, too much so, but our mission was to be low FODMAP, gluten-free and vegan. And that we, we've got to stay laser focused there. So that was just like, that's one small example, but I've found that to be true as kind of, as we moved along here is finding that balance between customer and North Star. Yeah, that's a really tough boundary to kind of navigate. At what point has there been an example of a time where you've gotten feedback from your customers and decided to go that direction? So I'm strangely obsessive about customer feedback. So since we've launched, I've never missed a day. I email 50 customers a night from 2 to 4 a.m. Every night. Um, Every night. From 2 to 4 a.m. That's like when you're supposed to be sleeping. Yeah, I know. I figure I'll sleep later. But I do it because one, I, I kind of view this as building a company alongside thousands of new friends, right? And our this topic is something that almost ends up being mental health related and that a lot of what you need as you're kind of navigating gut issues is support, right? And mental health support because it's hard and it really, it really impacts the way you live your life. So I've wanted to be that company and that friend, right? For, for the customers that we've, the customers and friends that we've crossed paths with on this journey. But as great as that's been, right? It's also, it's also been troublesome because, right, I hear a lot of feedback and it's, and choosing what we apply and what we don't is always difficult. So early on, we launched a product with Stevia in place of cane sugar and both Stevia and cane sugar were low certified low FODMAP, which again, I'll go back to as our North star. And so we thought, we thought the community wanted Stevia or a sugar alternative and our community really hated it. They really didn't like that Stevia was in the product. And I, rather than try to try to try to understand why or argue or defend, I decided, look, we were making these for them. That's who they're for. If they don't want Stevia, that's all we need to know. We need to go swap Stevia out. So it meant a reformulation very early on. It meant reformulating the bar. And it sounds easy just to swap Stevia out for cane sugar, but that, you know, formulation is not that simple. So we made, we made that choice really early uh, when I was actually still in the hospital, we were trying to reformulate at production to make that accommodation. And we did, and our, our customers were appreciative. So we've made lots of little tweaks over time in response to their feedback. They've, our customers have chosen the name, you know, we let them vote on names. So they ultimately voted for belly welly, our tagline, every flavor we've launched, the ingredients that go into our products, every future flavor, we survey customers and they decide. So you're just basically collecting their emails on your website and then sending them surveys. No. So when I say like I email 15 night, I use my personal Gmail account, like my personal Gmail account, and I write them each a handwritten email. And I just introduce myself. I ask for their thoughts, ask about their story if and what they want to share. So I send them at each a, a personal, you know, I'll look up their customer account. If they're in a city, I know I'll ask them about their city. So I write personal notes to each of them. You do, but with the surveys, that's how so you kind of collect our Facebook community. Oh, yep. you have a face. Okay. Facebook community. Yep. Is where so we lean on our Facebook community and our Instagram mm-hmm. community too. And even now TikTok to help us to, to inform what we make, what product decisions we make. Nice. And so you guys have this really interesting campaign. Hot Girls Have IBS campaign. You have billboards in Times Square in LA. You've really created this, you're creating this movement, this like IBS pride movement. You even have merchandise. Can you talk a little bit about the campaigns that you're doing and the merchandise? Yes, totally. So part of my mission, right? We made a decision early on that we didn't want to be a company teaching or educating, which sounds counterintuitive. And it doesn't mean we don't surface educational content or expert content. We're big fans of of surfacing experts and sharing that with the community. But we wanted to be a community that was in in it with you, right? Especially as like a fellow IBS sufferer, like I'm in this with you. I speak your language. Let's all stick together in this. That was really our, our stance. And so part of that, part of that mission is normalizing the conversation around things like IBS, bloating, food intolerances, gut issues. 
kind of take this full circle. If you remember back back at the beginning when I mentioned that 76% of my own personal network had gut issues and we weren't talking about it, that's haunted me since, right? Is I, I wanted to change that. So it's one thing to say, oh, I want to normalize the conversation. It's another to actually do that. And I couldn't, I was having a hard time connecting those two dots, to be really honest. Like, how do we do that? You know, we can add pink and sparkles, but that doesn't normalize the conversation around IBS. So I was driving in LA one day and someone had mentioned to me at some point that hot girls have stomach problems as a joke. And I, I had laughed and thought it was like so funny and so true. And I thought, I wonder if we put up a hot pink billboard in the middle of LA that said hot girls have IBS. I wonder if we could accomplish what I'm trying to accomplish. And I hope it goes without saying that I didn't actually mean hot girls have IBS, right? The term hot girls was kind of meant to reclaim the conversation. And my definition of hot girls is literally anyone who's willing to, to claim that they've got IBS. You can be an 80-year-old man, which we totally have in our network, uh, a 20-year-old, a 50-year-old. I, I don't care who you are, but if you are if you have got IBS and you're willing to kind of sing it loud and proud or gut issues, you're a hot girl with IBS in our mind. So I had this, this, this idea of putting up this billboard and I was worried. I didn't know if that would resonate or if people would understand what we were trying to say, right? I didn't want that. I didn't want people to receive it as hot girls have IBS. So I Googled billboard company and I called the first number that came up and said, could you help me get a billboard in LA that says hot girls have IBS? And they laughed and said, okay, you know, I guess. And so we put up the billboard and the first day we put it up, a celebrity posted about it organically in front of the billboard and said, IBS, it's a lifestyle. And from that day forward, so the billboard was up, the first billboard in LA was up for about four weeks, a little bit more. You would drive by the billboard at any given time and there was a line of people taking photos in front of the billboard. West LA, it was 405 visible, which was incredible, on Sepulveda. It's like a very hard area to describe other than like deep West LA. <laughs> um, and so we started selling Hot Girls of IBS sweatshirts about a week into the billboard. And we started selling about a hundred a week. We started selling IBS tote bags and those went just as fast. And so, you know, what I loved about it was that it did exactly what I hoped it was going to do. It was that thing that was okay to take a, a photo in front of and post on your social media. It made it, it made it okay to say, I've got IBS. And it also was that thing you took a picture of and sent to any friend who had got, you know, who, who has gut issues in your network. So it worked, I suppose, is, is, the, is what I'm trying to say. And so we asked our community, where should we put one next? And the community voted Portland, which I was totally cool with having been from Portland. And we put it up in Portland and the same thing happened. In fact, a Reddit thread started in Portland and people bonded over the Reddit thread and even had a meetup at the billboard. They were strangers that had a meetup in the billboard at, at the billboard. And so we just put up another one. This will be our third one in Times Square about a week and a half ago. Yeah, we went big on this one. And, and I, we're, we're going to continue to put them up and we're going to let the community decide what cities they go into next. How cool is it not only to start such a cool, inspiring movement, but to also have a billboard in Times Square? <laughs> I'm like dying because I haven't been to see it yet. So you have I am, to see it. Oh, I know. Like, this I know, is I know. a once in a lifetime opportunity to see like your brand up in Times Square. That's insane. Yeah. I've got to like make a quick dash to New York before it comes down. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. That's amazing. And so I've, you know, I've tried these. Thank you for sending some over the strawberry shortcake. The cinnamon swirl is actually my favorite. They taste really good. It's like you describe it on the website as what, like probiotics in your brownies. Yeah. So brownies is a word that like, we still have a tough time with. And and I say brownies because it's this, we get stuck in the bar category, but we're really not a bar. You've tried at least so you can. Yeah, it's like attest. dessert. It's like dessert. Exactly. But it's also a snack bar. So bar, you think of protein. These don't have protein. That wasn't a goal. Uh, it's not how and where our customers are eating them, right? They're not eating them as meal replacements. They're eating them in place of the sweet snack that they're missing out on. A lot of our customers love having a few as a breakfast treat, like similar to the way you might have a croissant. So brownies is a little bit of a controversial term. We haven't cracked quite the the, the right word because they're not all chocolate brownies, right? But you can, they're like soft cookies and they do have real probiotics. So that was a decision that we made. Not probiotic ingredients, not prebiotic ingredients, like actual real probiotics 
the kind that you would find in a pill are actually in the bars. Um, and yes, we have to lab test to ensure the probiotics survive post-bake. That's always the first question we get. So there are real probiotics that survive post-bake and it's a microdose. So if you're already taking a probiotic, you should absolutely be able to handle these. In addition, we always get asked, how many can I eat a day? I say as many as you want. I eat three a day and that's perfect for me, but we've got customers who eat more than three a day for sure. So yeah, I mean, they're, I'm biased, but they've, they've been the thing that I needed or was missing in my life. So what are some of the challenges you've faced in fundraising? Um, how much have you guys raised so far and what challenges have you kind of faced in that process? Cause it's your first time kind of fundraising for this company, right? You didn't have another company that you fundraised for. You've had to meet all these investors on your own. What's the process been like? Yeah, we've raised just over three. And I don't think the word is ever, I don't think, you know, fundraising and easy belong in the same sentence. But I do think, to kind of my earlier point, I thought we were going to have an uphill battle in education here. And that has not been the case. So everyone's got, when I say everyone, I, I actually mean everyone that we've talked to. It doesn't mean every single person has invested, but has had a personal tie to this, which has made the story really easy to tell because everyone recognizes the need. It doesn't mean it's a fit for everyone in, in you know, their investment portfolio, but we haven't come across someone who said there's not a need for this. I think probably if I, if I were to come up with, with one, it's that bar has a stigma, right? There's a lot of bars nowadays. I really believe we're not really a bar, but I've got to get better as a founder kind of explaining that. But people hear bar and they think, oh, there's enough. I've got 20 bars in my pantry or I have enough protein bars. So trying to, trying to illustrate that this is, we happen to stumble into bars as an initial first step simply because we were putting cookies in bar molds. But we believe and have every intention and plan of, of meeting him or her at seven or eight points in their day at some point. So this will expand beyond bars. We're not a bar company. It's a, it's a brand that's has a potential to low FODMAPify many categories. And so, yeah, that, that, that's our next job and, and our next step. And so, you know, building a team and leading a team um, has a lot of challenges in itself, you know, starting and growing a business that involves a lot of professional, you know, and personal growth. How have you kind of grown personally as a leader? The biggest learning curve for me has been, it's, it's probably such a cliche thing to say is, is not getting discouraged, right? At the, not getting discouraged by, fundraising can be a discouraging process. Uh, growth can be discouraged, you know, not getting discouraged by not going as fast as I want to, right? So for me, that pain point for us has been operational scale. So we've had this interesting problem where we demand has grown at a, at a really exponential rate. And we haven't always been able to meet that demand with, 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 with operational scale yet. And we're getting better at that, but I have so little patience for that. And that's, that's been a big, since something I've really tried to work on, right. Is realizing that like, it doesn't all have to happen now and tomorrow. And if it doesn't all happen now and tomorrow, that's okay. It's more important to build a smart business, right. Than than just have an epic, awesome story. It just kills me, right? When I see orders coming in that we we can't fulfill. And so I've really had to had to get better at recognizing that. I don't mean to butt in, but I think you yeah. do have an epic awesome story. <laughs> so. I just mean like I it kill I, it kills me, right? When I'm like, oh, but we could do this if we had, if we were able to sell X number more, we could right. hit this revenue milestone. And we've chosen to be smart operationally early. And I think that's hopefully going to pay dividends in the end, but it, it's meant that I've, I've uh, had to develop some patience. <laughs> I probably was lacking a lot of patience. I mean, you were disclosing some revenue numbers to me before. I don't know if I'm allowed to say it out loud on the show, but the number you said that you hit in your first year is like really big. So I don't know what crazy ass goals you have. I mean, cause that's like already really high and you hit it. So, and most companies don't hit that number or get close in their first year. So maybe I have to temper expectations. Maybe that's something so else. Maybe you're delusional. No, <laughs> no, so I probably do have a lot to work on, but I think, um, I mean, as a it's founder, good to be ambitious. Getting, I love the ambition. 
But you got to be, you know, I think a part of being a founder too is just like also enjoying the ride. And it's easier to say that because, hey, I'm sitting over here and you're in the trenches over there. So I can say it easy, but if I'm in the hot seat, I will definitely be in the same you know, position as you of being like, we're not moving fast enough. It's never good enough. I want more. I want more. I want more. And I think that's what it takes to build a successful business. But I think also just for like self-happiness and feeling good and proud, like it's so important to take those moments and look back and be like, oh my God, look what we did. I'm look really what we're doing. That. So my husband's really good at that. That's the other, that's the area, like other area of improvement that I've like, I can't say I've mastered yet, but I'm really trying is when you go start a business with your spouse, right? Work-life balance absolutely goes out the door and he is so much better at that than I am. So like, we'll be watching Love is Blind, right? Like, I like that he watches it with you. (laughs) He would argue that he doesn't watch it, but he a hundred percent would, you know, will be watching with me. My husband's in denial too. (laughs) They they all love it, right? Like, yeah, they uh, love it. Yeah, we were just like arguing about Shane not that long ago, and so I'll like bring up, and I'm and I you know I'm really lucky in that I you know I'm married to someone who totally champions the fact that I'm a CEO, even though we started this together, and respects that and loves that and recognizes that. But I'll like you know like the bossy probably older sister and me will like bring up something that like needs to get done at 11 30 at night as we're watching love is blind and then like i'll pivot 180 in that moment to like that needs to get done and i want to work on this right now absolutely drives him crazy for good reason and he's watching love is blind and he's like i can't believe shane and shana didn't make <laughs> totally we were like arguing that i i like before i won't get into it but before it all went went wrong I was like I kind of had a soft spot for Shane even though he's a little quirky I was like I don't know and he was not team my husband was not team Shane so anyways so what advice do you have for aspiring entrepreneurs and what else can we see coming from Bally Welly soon yeah I think my advice this sounds this sounds like bad advice but I think my advice is the barrier to entry is less than you think. And I say that because I think even though I had spent a lot of time in a startup, I used to think I'd get as far as the idea, right. And like get excited about an idea and think like, Oh, but the whole like fundraising, that's not for me. Like, I don't, I don't know anything about that. And it's easier than you think. I, I'm, I say easy because doing, doing all of this is hard. And I think every, every entrepreneur and founder would agree, but you, why not you, I think is my advice is like, why not you? And so I'm a huge believer in you. If, if you want to do it, you definitely can do it. It doesn't mean everyone should sign up to go be an entrepreneur or founder, because I think this, this, the struggle is real, but you can, you can get started if you want to get started. And I think with that, I'm no expert and I'm still baby startup and still so much to learn, but I'm always willing to go out on a limb and say, I don't know, you could email me at katieabellywelly.com in a year. You could email me tomorrow. I don't care if I've never met you. And like, if there's something I can do to help, whether it's just like connecting you with someone that helped me, I really am a believer in that. And Talia taught me that. So Talia is the queen of that. And she embodies that and it comes back to her tenfold. And that's not why she does it, but she, she does pass it along. So that's my advice. In terms of what's coming next for Belly Welly, we're just about to, to open our first price round. We got a, more fundraising. We got to hire people. So it's a team of three right now. We've kept it really lean and that's been great and fun, but we need more bodies on the team. And we're going into retail this year. So we really spent our first year blowing up direct to consumer. And this year we're going to retail. And so lots more learning curves ahead. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, before we wrap up, I feel like I just want to throw in a piece of advice there too. Just this whole idea or just really, you know, this relishing in the moments of momentum, I feel like is so important because it, it helps you stay motivated, but it also lets you appreciate what you've accomplished to kind of fill you up a little bit more while you can continue on with the marathon. Right. Cause I also feel like, you know, I, I had a startup and I feel like I didn't do that enough. And then before, you know, if five years have passed and you look back and you're like, that was an incredible moment. Why? I mean, and you look back and you're like, 
it's not as big of a deal because you're now onto bigger and better things. But at that time, that was such a game changer or that was such a big meeting that went so well, or you just got this investor that you can't believe just like joining you and just taking that all in while you're on this journey. I think it's just so important because you're only on this journey once. That is really true. And if you're an entrepreneur founder type through and through, your cup is full the whole time, whether you recognize it or not. Right. And I think I really notice it to your point when you think about going back, right. And doing like, that's when you're like, Oh, I realize how fulfilled I like, I realize how much I love this, even though today is stressful. Like you really realize how you, this really is. So I think that's, that's good advice for sure. So thank you so much, Katie, for joining me on the show today and sharing your awesome story. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Lee. You are incredible. I just appreciate you taking the time and I needed the advice. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And can't wait to stay in touch. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.